Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, Ontario's vaccine portal is now open. Is it safe to wait four months between COVID-19 vaccines? And change is coming to the cell phone industry. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hope you are razor sharp after a time change weekend. If not, do not listen to the show while operating heavy machinery. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. As of today, the Ontario uh, portal opens up for vaccine registration. Uh, up until now, the local health organizations uh, have been doing it while the provinces uh, gets ready for their, their system. Uh, boy, the government, just it's amazing to me how much heat the provinces are getting uh, and deflecting from the federal government in regard to, they better be ready, those provinces better be ready. Why wasn't this system up and running long ago? What is going on here? And, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, there's, again, a, uh, a dribble of vaccine coming in this week, and the mass amounts don't start coming in until next week. So, again, you know, everybody's just, uh, for some reason, taking this out on the provinces and uh, complaining that their distribution system is not up and running, when, in fact, we the vaccine is still trickling in and won't come in uh, strong enough to open up mass vaccination sites until more towards the end of the month. Uh, that being said, uh, the Ontario portal opened up today. From what we understand so far, it is working, uh, it is working well. It hasn't crashed or anything like that. Uh, we certainly heard about British Columbia's who are always, who are always, uh, uh, compared as, you know, the picture province that are doing everything right. Um, they're vaccinating 84 year olds today. Uh, Ontario is opening up theirs to 80 year olds. Uh, BC crashed last week. Uh, so again, I'm, you know, I, I think all the provinces are pretty much in the same predicament, yet it doesn't stop people from somehow deflecting the blame that the prime minister has not delivered on the vaccines and instead taking it out on the provinces who are, you know, we were, we were talking to Paul Johnson from the, the Hamilton health table last week and he said they're ready to open up cops Coliseum. Well, why don't you do it now? Well, because there's no vaccines to open that up yet. And again, although we're constantly hearing they're coming in weeks and weeks and weeks, you can't just shut and turn the system on and off without a consistent supply. Now, that looks like it is increasing and getting better over uh, the next couple of uh, weeks. But at this point, we're the, the issue is not distribution, and it never has been. The issue is we do not have the supply coming into the country. And uh, I think it's time we focused on that instead of, you know, how good or bad the provinces are doing. And the other thing is, is all of a sudden the feds are going to dump all of this mass amount of vaccination on all the provinces, and they're going to have to handle it. You know, expecting to do, you know, uh, two, three, four months worth of vaccinations overnight. Like, that's not going to happen. It takes time. And again, this system was designed that they were supposed to start coming in in January and then slowly pick up and pick up and pick up. Uh, that being said... Um, uh, you know, that supply has, has, has had issues. So, uh, anyway, uh, getting an email in, Judy says, uh, the portal is currently not working. Um, that being said, I got a, uh, a note from my in-laws today. They are signed up and ready to go. I also have another caller who was in, this was, uh, I think around 10 or 11 o'clock. 
that they had said that they had uh, registered. It took them eight minutes to get in, and then uh, bingo, they're done. So, uh, and again, uh, you know, I know with the situation with my in-laws, I think it was like um, March is the first one, and then they got to wait till July uh for the uh for the second dose so uh still lots and lots of hurdles to cross here as uh as we get going but the point is uh we are moving forward uh you know these uh appointments are getting booked but again mass vaccination will not start until the end of the month when we start to see uh way more vaccines uh coming into the country all right let's bring in uh local mpp for flamborough glambrook donna skelly she is with us now donna thanks for the time i hope you're doing well i am i'm uh very fortunate to have a job and very fortunate to be healthy and uh, you mentioned your in-laws my mother uh, is 90 and she turned 90 this year and uh, my stepfather were able to register as well and again they have to wait for their second vaccine until june because we just don't have enough supply so uh let's talk about the site itself and and what and and we'll we'll uh, we'll give this information out at the beginning and then the end of this segment so if people want to book what is the information you are giving them what should they do well first of all you must be over 80 period. You cannot book a vaccine if you are under 80 or if you do not have one of the green health cards. In other words, if you don't have a health card or you are still using the red and white card, you cannot book through this portal. And you cannot book a second vaccine. If you've already had your first uh, vaccination and you're waiting for a second, you cannot use this portal. You will be called by the public health unit to tell you when you will be getting your second vaccine, but you cannot register for a second vaccine using this portal. You cannot use this portal if you are not over 80. So be very, very clear. You'll be kicked out if you try to somehow uh, work your way in and, and try to get a dose. It's not going to happen. So that's number one. But it's very simple. When you do go to the Ontario.ca website, you can simply follow the steps. It's very, very, very user-friendly. And from what I've heard so far this morning, I just got off the phone with Paul Johnson, and he said there have been complaints of people saying that they couldn't get through. We're not sure. There are isolated glitches. Right. But I followed up with the uh, Solicitor General. She said the site is still up. It's still running, and people are still able to access it. And they should hear, uh, they should be able to book their, their shot within a day or two. Very, very simple to use. It is very user-friendly, but you must be over 80 or it will not let you in. And what about those that uh, don't have access any other way, phone or such, to get an appointment? Well, if, if they don't have, I can give you a phone number. It might be too early, but there is a phone number. It's one eight 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 nine 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 six four eight eight, And I can repeat that later on. Uh, but if they don't, call your, your public health department and they will help you um, navigate the system. But again, you must be over 80 in order to be eligible for this next batch of vaccines. All right, Donna, uh, obviously uh, the provincial government getting a lot of uh, critique and, and such about how slow this rollout has been. You know, the typical thing is you've had months to plan this. Why is it happening now? Uh, again, you know, um, I'll leave my opinion out of it, but, but what is your reaction to uh, Ontario's slow rollout to this site? 
I don't believe it has been a slow rollout. We have the capacity, as we speak, to vaccinate 150,000 people a day. We can do almost 5 million people over the next month. We do not have the vaccines. We cannot vaccinate people if we don't have the supply. We have the ability to vaccinate people. We just don't have the supply. We've got to get the federal government to do their job to get Canadians, Ontarians, access to the four uh, vaccines, the Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and the Johnson & Johnson. They've all been approved by Health Canada. We need them. We can inject people, but we can't vaccinate people if we don't have the supply. The problem isn't the process. The problem is getting access to the vaccinations, the vaccines. And uh, what about, uh, talk a little bit about the supply chain, because again, this was set up in January and such, and how difficult it is to keep these supply chains working if the if the supply is inconsistent. And we understand this week will be a bit of a lull, and there won't be as much coming in as there was last week, and then next week it ramps up a bit. Exactly. We're going to be, and I think you mentioned the word dump, we're going to be receiving a a larger amount of the vaccine next week, and we are trying to work with what we have currently. The government made a priority, made a decision to prioritize certain segments of the population early on when we received the first batch, and and we recognize that our our frontline workers, our long-term care residents, our congregate setting residents, the retirement communities, and of course our First Nations communities and vulnerable populations, but our First Nations communities uh, that live in fly-in communities. We had to have them vaccinated early as well because of the inability to um, transport people who may need to be on a ventilator. So they have, for the most part, received their first and second doses um, of the vaccine, and we've seen how that has impacted the number of people who are currently um, uh, suffering from COVID-19 or have the deaths in our long-term care facilities. Those numbers have dropped drastically since we focused on the long-term care and congregate settings. We've seen a huge drop in the number of people who have COVID-19 in those settings. And it's starting to, um, now we have to move into the other population, other members of the population, such as the over 80s who are staying at home, who are independent. And then we'll move to the um, 65 to 80 uh, bracket. But again, it goes right back to, if we don't have the supply, we cannot reach these people. We have the ability. We have public health units across Ontario who have either uh, come up with their own websites not a lot of them, but a few, and they've been able to allow people to book through their websites. We have, uh, otherwise, we have the, the site, of course, that we launched today. We have hospitals that are able to um, provide the vaccines. My parents went to St. Joe's. They said it was an incredibly pleasant experience, and I want to kudos to the staff who have been very caring and kind and thoughtful dealing with this elderly population who are somewhat hesitant and, and anxious, and, and they held their hand and walked them right through the process, and they said it was an absolutely uh, wonderful experience. Um, and then we have, you know, as I said, our public health units who have been working overtime to ensure that every dose that comes into the community is, is um, given out to somebody who is eligible. The problem isn't the supply, uh, isn't the, the, the process in getting access to the vaccine. It truly is the number of vaccines we have. And I'm, I'm going to say, you know, I think as a, as a government, our, our 
premier has been hesitant in in you know pointing the finger of blame throughout this but i think he's he's frustrated now saying look you've had a year where are these vaccines we have a frustrated population that wants the vaccine we have the ability to give it to them we just don't have the doses and again, you know, the premier's taking the heat for this, and we wouldn't be having this discussion, Donna, or the discussion or debate whether to stretch this to a fourth dose if we had supply. We're rationing doses here uh, and stretching it to four months because we don't have the supply. And I'm sure the provincial premiers right the way across the country are getting tired of feeling the heat for that when it's Justin Trudeau who should be. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the, the stretching of the second dose? We still get lots of concerns from people that are saying uh, there's no real medical evidence of this. Again, I don't think we have a choice here uh, because we don't have a supply. Um, but even these appointments we're booking now, they are set out at four months apart, correct? Exactly. We would have been able to give them the second dose. Again, it goes back to if we had the supply. But we made a decision based on medical advice, which we have done since the beginning. And we decided that based on what we were heard from the, uh, it, it's the NACI, which is the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations. And they, they, they confirmed they believe that people who receive the first dose are between 80 and 90% um, safe from contracting this vaccine and, or this virus. And if they do, they can survive the virus. The chances of having to be put on a ventilator or getting seriously ill have decreased substantially. So based on that advice, we chose to <clears throat> vaccinate as many people as possible we believe in getting as many people, giving as many people the first dose is far more impactful, far more helpful to um, our communities overall than giving um, the limited number to a handful of people. So we and made I guess the decision. And I guess the same situation with pharmacies, you know, I mean, obviously that's the easiest route, but again, it becomes a supply issue in making sure they all get uh, enough to, to even book these appointments. The, the pharmacies have been very anxious to be able to help out, but again, we can't give them vaccines that we don't have. We've had um, physicians would love to help out. Again, it goes back to we will give you those those uh, vaccines when we have the supply. It's very simple. The province is ready to administer as many as 150,000 people per day. We can vaccinate almost 5 million people over the next four weeks. We simply don't have the supply to do it. We've got to put pressure on the federal government. They have to step up. It's been a year. Justin had one job to do and he's failed. It's not the responsibility of the province to negotiate for vaccines. We have put in place a distribution plan. We can ramp up as soon as we receive the vaccines. We just have tremendous uncertainty around the supply. We need to have a consistent amount of doses coming in, but we're not getting them. And we have so how can how concerned are you, Donna, that, you know, all of these are going to come in at once and the system's going to crash? I mean, you, I mean, this is inevitable. I mean, you can't do three or four months worth of vaccinations overnight. So, uh, again, how concerned are you that all of these are going to arrive on Ontario's doorsteps and, you know, come on, what's the problem? 
I, I'm very concerned, and it, you know, it hasn't escaped us that this is just going to be a massive dump, and people angry that they can't yeah. get in line and get in and and get their vaccination, and rightfully so. But we will do what we can. As I said, we can do approximately five million over the next four weeks. I'm not sure we'll even have that many doses, but um, I would rather have the pro- problem of oversupply than undersupply, which is where we are today. All right, Donna Skelly with us. Yeah, Donna Skelly with us, MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook. We didn't even talk LRT. Uh, Once again. We've got to just say happy LRT anniversary. I don't know. We have to say LRT every conversation, Scott. That's it. we got to fit it in there. Okay, so all uh, again, go to the provincial website. What is the direction we can give there again, Donna, quick? Uh, Ontario.ca slash uh, immunizations. But if you've also got a number, if you want um, one eight eight. Eight one eight 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 nine 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 six four eight eight. If you can't get through, you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on nine hundred CHML. But a lot are concerned about the four month wait between vaccinations and the science on that. To talk more about all of this, Dr. George Fridge is with us. Uh, Fritz is with us. Sorry, associate professor with the Department of Microbiology and Immuno- uh, Immunology at McGill University, and is with us now. Dr. Fritz, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, everything's great. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. So your thoughts on, uh, and, and I know this is sort of the best of a bad situation when uh, vaccine supply is scarce in the country. Uh, I guess it's the philosophy here is better to get more uh, jabbed with one dose than, uh, than waiting for the second and holding that one back. Uh, what are your thoughts on the four-month wait between vaccination? I'm not very happy with the decision, uh, especially we're talking here about vaccinating, uh, you know, not all the population we are first vaccinating the most vulnerable ones and we know that in the elderly the immune response is much harder to induce Uh, it's harder to get a a strong immune response by a vaccine and we are delaying that now the two doses as recommended by the companies Uh, so it's a little bit of a gamble um, but i know there are a lot of studies going on to assess how good the immune response by the by this you know like different intervals is so we should have some clearer data coming in in fall but i think overall it has to be a risk assessment because the danger is that uh, come next winter people vaccinated first the elderly is the most vulnerable might need another booster vaccination so this is a, a wholesome discussion, and I think we should see it as a risk assessment here that we need to take. So uh, what does or what do the manufacturers say about this, doctor? What do they recommend for uh, the second dose? I mean, obviously, initially it was 21 and I think in 28 days for Pfizer and, and Moderna, uh, respectfully. And then that was extended to 40, 42 days or such. But how do the manufacturers feel about four months? They're not very happy about that, that it's changed. Uh, There are some encouraging studies coming out that one shot also induces quite a strong immune response. But you know, the the studies are not necessarily done always with, uh, you know, like the most vulnerable and elderly. So I think, you know, overall, you know, the answer is it takes time to study time. 
so we don't know the the correct answer. I would have liked to not see such a huge delay because it's a big gamble and we're putting again the most vulnerable at risk. Uh, Initially, we were talking about extending this to about 40 days. How did we arrive at the four-month interval? I think it comes with the discussion of uh, what you started your your introductory note of supply is short. So we're doing everything to just, uh, you know, getting as many people one shot and uh, justifying that in a way. Um, but again, you know, the, the four months is just kind of like, you know, it takes about three to four weeks to have a very strong immune response induced by one shot. So, you know, and then it, you know, consistently but slowly declines in a healthy adult, the immune response after vaccination. So the estimation comes from other vaccines that have been given to people where, you know, when you give a booster, a second shot, that, you know, if you give that around, you know, three to four months, the final immune response after the two shots is kind of like the same, like giving it after three to four weeks. Mm -hmm. So that's where the estimation comes, but this is mostly from other vaccines. We don't know that for these vaccines, and we don't know that overall for the elderly. Are there any other countries doing this? No, Canada is uh, the one that goes, that stretches it clearly the most. There are, of course, you know, other countries with giving that, you know, I would say uh, in, um, two months or, you know, the 40 days mark at around that time. But uh, Canada is clearly stretching it the most. So what sort of scenario does this create for the late summer or fall? Because initially it was everybody was supposed to be vaccinated by then. Uh, now, obviously, the, the, the scheduling, the strategy has changed quite a bit. We've had very inconsistent supply to date. Uh, now we're stretching out uh, the second dose into the, to the first dose. And again, people are booking now in March, I guess, are, are scheduled to get their second one in July. What happens in the summertime? Will, it, will this create another problem or will, be, will systems be up in, in, in place and enough supply that this won't be an issue? What we know when supply should come in, I think, you know, let's hope, according if everything goes smoothly, that uh, a lot of people should be vaccinated come summer, come August. I think the estimate is about August, September, we could reach that up to 65 to 70% of people got their vaccine. However, I think what's really critical is to look ahead for the next winter and really know, you know, do we need to give elderly, you know, people over 65 already, you know, in early fall, another booster that they are really fully protected? Should there be another uptick in cases coming with next winter? I think that's the most critical question we are facing. Uh, and would it, would it be accurate to say that we really can't start opening things up until everyone has received that second shot? Well, 
I think, you know, the opening should come, of course, with increased, you know, vaccination rate. And then I think one definitely should and can, you know, start opening things because we are also entering spring, you know, the warmer season of the year. But, you know, I would argue that masks should stick throughout 2021, even though reaching into spring 2022 to be like really protected. It's very clear that masks can clearly, you know, like uh, help with the spread. Um, So I would be cautious to loosen up everything completely and even remove masks like, you know, states in the U.S. currently are doing that. What about your thoughts about opening the U.S. border? Uh, It was interesting. Way back at the beginning of all of this, we were obviously concerned about the massive outbreaks that were happening uh, in the United States and, and their inability to grab it way back when. Now, of course, they've they've uh, passed us and and are uh, shooting out the vaccine as possible as fast as they as they possibly can. What about opening the U.S. border? I mean, now it would be they're vaccinated, but we're not. We're the reasons keeping it closed. Will that keep the borders closed until everyone's fully vaccinated? I doubt that. I think, you know, um, thinking about opening the border or let's put the topic even larger, international travel needs to come with, you know, increased thought about how do you document international travel? Um, Is there something coming like, you know, a vaccine, an immunity passport where we track movement of people based on the vaccine? Of course, always considering, you know, with the proper privacy rights in place, we hear that, you know, the European Union is about to roll out something like that or at least have increased discussions. You know, Denmark and Sweden last week, you know, announced they clearly want to move forward with that. Israel already has like an intra-country, you know, vaccine passport in place where You know, based on whether you got the shot or not, you're allowed to enter certain sections where you can go. So I think that comes with, you know, the discussion of opening the Canada-U.S. border. Um, We heard last week that there are talks going on between the American president and the Canadian prime minister. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, that's in the making. And I think this is definitely a very complex discussion. How concerned are you, doctor, of a third wave? We heard uh, saw modeling predictions the last few weeks ago, uh, last few weeks that have said that March, late March and April could be uh, a difficult time. The race between the vaccines uh, and the variants. We're certainly hearing in, in uh, Italy, in parts of Italy, moving more towards uh, a lockdown again. How concerned are you uh, about the third wave? Very, because, you know, um, here in Montreal, we just had March break um, with, you know, movie theaters and indoor swimming pools being opened um, with the end, the last week of March, gyms and, and, you know, churches being opened. So I'm worried that, you know, like we, we are opening things up too fast considering also the spread of the new, more infectious variants of the virus. 
it bears, of course, the danger that, you know, come mid-April, we have a, a stark uptick of cases that might be even more infectious. Um, we also see more outbreaks here, at least in Montreal, in schools, um, even though, you know, they're not, um, don't come with increased, you know, like mortality or sickness for the kids it can, you know, increase the spread among adults as well. So I think time will tell. I'm, of course, personally hoping we don't get there and we can transition into a vaccine rollout spring, summer, with, you know, cases being lower. But, as you know, it, it's uncertain. Right now it looks, you know, the next two weeks will tell. Uh, how important is it? Well, obviously, it's important that all of long-term care, those institutions have been done now. So if a third wave does hit, at least those most vulnerable uh, will be better protected. How will that shape a third wave if it does happen? Well, I think the danger is always um, there is quite good evidence that these new, more infectious variants they originated in vulnerable or in immunocompromised people. So the danger is, of course, always that if you suboptimally vaccinate and you still have quite an increased spread of the virus, that you are selecting for, you know, better adapted viral strains that might be more infectious. So this is the fear that I'm having that, you know, like given the delay of the second dose in the most vulnerable elderly population, we're creating here an increased risk. And, um, you know, I, I hope it will not get there, but the danger is certainly given. Do you see a world where this is an annual event where we have these vaccinations every year, just like a flu shot? Um, I think definitely for the next couple of years, until the vaccine is rolled out, I would say mostly worldwide, we will need something like that. And then we will see how adaptable the virus is to, you know, like a broad population immunity. Can it always escape? Are there always new variants arising? Um, I think, but definitely the next, I would say, three to five years, we should prepare that we at least, you know, I would say above the age of 50 or 60, people will need to get the booster vaccine. What can we learn from Europe who are starting to experience uh, or have experienced the third wave? Uh, we're seeing Italy now going back into parts of lock, into lockdown in, in cities like Rome and, and Milan, two-thirds of their population. And, you know, a lot of Europe's, they've been, uh, Europe has been vaccinated. They're vaccinating at, at a much higher rate than what we are, maybe not so much in Italy, um, but certainly in the U.K. What can we learn from what they're doing? How, you know, even with vaccination, they're still experiencing this. Well, let's be patient. Um, and, you know, keep keep the guard up. I think, you know, if we are impatient, we are selecting for more, you know, infectious viral variants. If we are not able to bring the population spread of the virus significantly down, we might, this might be a looming problem throughout 2021, even into the next winter. 
And I think people are already definitely tired of it. And, you know, everyone can understand it. But, you know, now is the time to bring population transmission down as much as possible, you know, with keeping the guard up. And, you know, like with increased vaccination rollout, it needs to go hand in hand. I think that's what we're seeing that uh, in places in Europe um, that was not managed well. Dr. George Fritz has been with us, associate professor with the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at McGill University, talking about uh, delays in vaccination and uh, the period of time between the first and second shot. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Stay safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on from this. Let's bring in Ian Lee, professor at Carleton University Sprott School of Business. And a couple of things to talk about here. Uh, Rogers and Shaw deal in the communications industry. And it looks like uh, uh, the prime minister is helping out Quebec with a battery plant. For more on this, Ian Lee, professor at Carleton University, is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, uh, thanks, uh, Scott. So let's talk about uh, the Quebec issue first and uh, the government giving them $50 million. I guess the province is going to match that as well to add to a battery plant in Quebec. Uh, is uh, I heard at the press conference one person say, is Quebec going to be the leading, uh, the leading uh, province when it comes to renewable, en- renewable energy? Uh, well, Quebec is probably already the leading province for renewable energy, but that's not because of batteries. That's because of the genius of Robert Bourassa, the former premier, the late premier of Quebec, 40 years ago, in the late 60s, early 1970s, when he, uh, uh, over great opposition from many different groups, said, we're going to harness James Bay. And they spent billions and billions of dollars. They had to borrow the money. And um, and Barassa had this vision. He said, look, once we build the thing, um, you know, it just generates enormous, endless, endless gargantuan amounts of electricity. And once you paid for the thing, it just keeps on. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And now Quebec is one of the largest producers, and it has some of the cheapest electricity rates in the world. And they're selling it uh, for billions of dollars every year, surplus electricity to the United States. So that's why they're a leader, not because of batteries. They're a leader because they've they they dammed the rivers of James Bay, uh, not all of them, but a good chunk of them, enough to produce this gargantuan amount of electricity. But in terms of the, the battery plant, I'm, I'm quite frankly, Scott, I'm very skeptical. And uh, I'm skeptical because, you know, when you look at the record of innovation, and there's always somebody who sums up and says, what about the Internet? Because the Internet was invented by DARPA, the defense R&D arm of the Pentagon in 1968. But for every invention that somebody can say came out of government, I can probably produce 100 or 200 or 500 that didn't, that came out of the private sector. And this isn't an anti-government diatribe. I'm not anti-government. My goodness, most of my family worked in the government for the last 30 years. I'm in the broader public sector. But government, anyone who says that government is the source of innovation in society just simply hasn't studied well, that's very similar to the the, the vaccine production uh, discussion. You know, everybody thinks it's government that produces vaccine. It's not government. It's it's private industry, and you've got to make it conducive for them to be here. Exactly. And and decent. I'm I'm just a huge believer in decentralized systems over centralized systems, which is a sort of a uh, um, you know a euphemism for talking about you know government versus private sector. Private sector. There's thousands, millions of companies in the private sector. That's what I mean by decentralized. To put it in plain English, there's many, many companies making many, many different bets on different investments, and many of them go wrong, and that's fine. It's decentralized. 
But when the government gets involved, then there's only one solution to where you go down that road towards. That's why I'm so skeptical that China will ever surpass the United States, so long as it remains a centralized system where there's a big brain at the top that has to say, I approve all the deep thinks, thoughts and the deep ideas and the direction of the economy. And there is already, now to come to the concrete, that's sort of the philosophical theoretical, to come to the concrete, if you people want to know who's doing the cutting edge on batteries, well, there's this guy called Elon Musk hmm. and Tesla. And by the way, let's not give all the credit to him. Toyota is spending enormous amounts of money. And so this $100 million is, you know, you might as well spit in the ocean and think you're having an impact on the size of the Atlantic Ocean. The amounts being spent by firms across the private sector, the big firms, I'm talking the Toyotas, I'm talking, you know, the, the Fiat, uh, the, they've been renamed, but that chain of companies, uh, you know, uh, Ford, General Motors. And, and so the idea that this is going to produce cutting edge what it's going to do is it's a subsidy to the truck company involved. They're, making, they're, they're going to subsidize the batteries for Lion Trucks. Okay, well, then let's just call it what it is. We're just subsidizing a company in Quebec. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing. No different than subsidizing Bombardier or, or General Motors in southern Ontario. And people can say, what is this another that? election deal in your eyes? I, yeah, I, I think that there's, you know, this is part of the run-up to the federal election. We know there's going to be a federal election. We're only debating now, is it going to be the spring, the, the, the summer, the fall? But there's going to be an election. And uh, Quebec is the base of the Liberal Party, uh, southern Ontario and the GTA and, and, uh, and uh, Quebec and the Maritimes. There's the base, really, of the Liberal Party. And especially so in Quebec, where they're having a real dogfight uh, with the Bloc Québécois. Uh, they, the Liberal Party, are really fighting it out for the hearts and minds of Quebecers, and they need every seat that counts. And so I think this is driven far more by politics. The idea that they're going to achieve some kind of a major technological breakthrough on production of batteries in one single plant in Quebec where they're putting $100 million in is just laughable. It's truly laughable. My students just finished doing a study on Tesla at a student group, and they're amazing. They did this 150-page study, and they spent an enormous amount of the uh, time in the study showing what Tesla, describing and analyzing what Tesla is doing on batteries. And Tesla is really doing amazing things. And they're again, they're not the only company in the world. The Chinese are investing billions into this. The Americans are different companies in the states, decentralized on a decentralized basis, for sure. Meaning it's not coordinated by the federal government. Nonetheless, there's companies in the states spending gargantuan amounts of money. So this is not going to produce a breakthrough. All it's going to do is subsidize the production costs of a particular company in Quebec that employs people in Quebec. All right. Uh, what about uh, the Rogers set to buy Shaw deal? Uh, how, where does this place them as far as national companies and such? What are your thoughts on this? Um, first, I want to disclose to everybody, I do not consult or have any interest whatsoever in any telecom company of any kind, directly or indirectly. I don't own shares. I don't consult. And in fact, I was talking about this sort of thing in my class about a week ago and because uh, I teach strategy. And I was saying how it makes a lot of sense for a company to buy up a competitor because then you can achieve more economies of scale. You can share costs between the two businesses that they're competitors because you often have the same supply chain, buying from the same companies, et cetera, et cetera. It's called synergy, by the way. But the more synergy you achieve, the worse it is for the greater public good because what that means is the industry becomes more and more concentrated, which mm-hmm. means there's less and less competition. So guess what? You and I pay higher fees. So 
you know, on that basis, people would say, well, then what on earth are we even going to contemplate? Why are we going to contemplate allowing these two companies to merge? Um, I read the uh, the releases from the two companies, and it was very clever what they did strategically. They didn't say, look, we want to merge because we want to make more money so we can go and screw all of you with higher prices. They didn't say that. What they said was, 5G is incredibly expensive, which it is, by the way. So this was very clever what they're doing. They're saying, look, everybody, you all want 5G across this country. We do. Politicians are saying it of all political stripes. And you Canadian, we Canadians, we want to go into the rural and the remote and northern communities so that everybody has 5G. Well, this is really, really expensive. So what they're saying, and we'll see if the parliamentarians and government will accept this argument, they're saying, look, if you really want 5G all across the country, including those really expensive rural and remote communities, they're saying, whether we agree or not, Rogers and Tellus are saying, we are not big enough on our own, each of us individually, to do it. It's too big, it's too expensive. So we've got to scale up and get bigger. This is similar to the argument that Fiat made and the late Sergio Marchionne, brilliant CEO, by the way, uh, Italian-Canadian CEO, and he argued that Fiat and Chrysler were not big enough. He says the, uh, the auto industries, the, the, uh, the, the economies of scale and the amount you have to spend in R&D are so enormous and they're getting bigger and bigger. He says the, the world is not big enough to support 10, imagine, 10 car companies in the world. He says we've got to consolidate some of them and get down to five or six. Now, that was his theory or opinion. You're seeing similar arguments being made in telecom, that the, the billions and billions and billions you need to invest are so gargantuan that there's hardly any companies that are a big enough size to afford it. So what Rogers and Telus are saying, and I'll repeat it again, they're arguing if we Canadians want to scale up quickly to 5G, and from 4G, and 5G is much, much faster. Everyone agrees it's vastly faster. You can download something like the Encyclopedia Britannica in a second, and it's going to open up and create new industries and all kinds of great, wonderful things. And they're saying, if you want that, and if you want to extend it out to the rural, not just the big cities of Toronto and Hamilton and Ottawa, but out into the rural where the Internet right now, as we all know, is kind of spotty. It's not very good. says, if you want it rolled out there, it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars, and we, Rogers, can't do it on our own, and we, Telus, can't do it on our own. We've got to combine to have the uh, revenues and the economies of scale to afford it. So that's the argument they're making. Now, listeners can say, I don't believe it. That's fine. That's okay with me. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have a dog in this hunt. I'm just explaining what they're saying. Will government accept this, do you think? Um, if they convince, if Rogers and Rogers, the CEO of Rogers, I've followed him in the media and the, you know, in the uh, financial post and in the Globe and Mail report on business. Smart guy. And uh, really smart guy. And um, he is, if he can produce reasonable data, I mean, I'm not talking secret documents or anything, just saying, look, people, here's the cost per kilometer or whatever, or per cell phone tower of 5G. And here's the number of the gazillion, here's the one million or five million cell phone towers we need across the country. And here's the total cost of 5G. And it's like 10 times or 50 times what we've already got, what we can afford. 
in terms of our uh, uh, annual investment budget. If he can show those numbers in a fairly straightforward way that people can grasp without getting into the deep wind of the weeds, I think he might. I think he might, and they might be able to convince the policymakers because there's a there's an increasing consensus in this country that we need um, technological infrastructure to go to the next level uh, yeah. to achieve uh, an, inc- an enhanced competitive advantage for the country, and it's going to benefit everybody. And I'm talking autonomous vehicles. You need a much faster internet speeds. I'm talking for telemedicine where the doctor can consult uh, in an operating room with a doctor halfway across the country. You know, those kinds of very sort of advanced applications. And if they can show that they cannot do what the government wants in terms of the rollout of 5G into the rural and, and all across the country, if they can show that they can't do it without this merger, then I would not be yeah. shocked to see it go through. Ian Lee with us, professor at Carleton University Sprott School of Business, talking about everything from electric batteries to your cell phone. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.